Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Alamogordo. More information about First Baptist Church can be found at www.fbcalamo.com. Well, good morning. As uh, was already mentioned, I am not Kyle. Um, I hope that doesn't terribly disappoint you this morning. Uh, as Kyle mentioned earlier, um, he has graciously allowed me to, to bring the word to you this morning. Uh, in case I haven't met you yet, my name is Bryson, uh, and me and my wife, Lexi, and our two children have been uh, members here at First Baptist Church just for just over two years now. And since I have a microphone and somewhat of a captive audience, um, I would like to just take a second and, and thank you, uh, First Baptist Church. Uh, Lexi and I are uh, just so wonderfully blessed by you all. It's a true blessing to walk in Christ together uh, with you day in and day out, and it's a pleasure both to serve you and to serve uh, with you. We truly love each one of you and uh, are amazed at the love of Christ that we have seen in you as you serve uh, one another. As we as the church, the body of Christ, are far from perfect, uh, but praise be to God, he is working in all of us, and that is so incredibly encouraging. So, I'm honored and privileged this morning to accomplish the weighty task of bringing God's word to you this morning. The words of Paul in 1 Corinthians kind of echo in my mind as I was preparing for this when he says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That is my aim this morning and to that end. Uh, Let's go to the Father one more time and ask for his help this morning. We pray to you, Father, uh, that you would be here this morning. Um, We pray for your blessing on both the proclaiming of your word and the hearing of your word this morning. I pray that you would do what only you can do, and that is uh, work in our hearts to change lives. I pray that would happen this morning, Father. by the power of your Holy Spirit, and for your glory. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. It was a cold February morning in 2015, the 15th of February to be exact. 21 Coptic Christians from Egypt, who had previously been captured, were led to a beach in Libya. The Christians were wearing orange prisoner jumpsuits and were lined up in one long row facing a camera, and they were made to kneel facing that camera. Each of them had their own executioner. Standing behind each, to each executioner's side was a sword, and they were dressed in all black, which covered both their face as well as their heads. These 21 Christians had been captured and held prisoner because of their faith in Jesus Christ. During their captivity, despite interrogation and torture to renounce their Savior, not one of them renounced Jesus. In fact, the leader of the terrorist group was dressed differently. If you can picture it, there is 21, 10 on each side of the leader of this group, and he wore different clothes. He was dressed in all camouflage, and in front of him was a man kneeling, and his name was Matthew Ayagira. Now, Matthew was not an Egyptian. He was from Ghana, a country in Africa. He got mixed up in the group during the capture, as he was thought to be a Christian, but at the time of capture, he was indeed not. But during capture and torture, when he witnessed the faith 
and love of the 20 Christian men around him toward both each other as well as toward their captors, he bowed his knee to Jesus and submitted his life to God. It was reported that during their tenure as prisoners, while each was told to reject Jesus and convert to Islam or face certain death, Matthew was reported as saying, I am a Christian and I am like them, meaning the, the 20. On that morning in February, it can be seen from the video that circulated the internet that the leader of the executioners bent down to give Matthew one final option, one final chance to reject Jesus. And Matthew said back to him, their God is my God, knowing it would lead to his death. And it did. The heads of 21 martyred Christians fell to the Libyan sand that morning. And this morning, all 21 are singing praises to Jesus. Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. Our question, my question for us this morning is why would anyone willingly choose, willingly choose to suffer and maybe even die for the gospel of Jesus? Our text this morning is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. It's 2 Timothy 1, 13 through 18, and I invite you to turn there in your own copy of Scripture as it will be helpful for you to follow along. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, our text can be found on page 1,155 of the red Bibles that are dispersed in the pew racks in front of you, uh, and you can follow along there. That's 1,155. What we're going to do this morning is simple. We're just going to go verse by verse and line by line and see what the Bible says. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, we invite you to take that Bible with you as a gift from us to you today. This morning, we are in week four of our study of 2 Timothy. Three weeks uh, have passed, and three weeks ago, Kyle led us in the reading of the entire book of 2 Timothy from front uh, to end, from beginning to end, because here at First Baptist Church, we think it's incredibly important to open God's Word and simply just to read it. Um, Two weeks ago, so the last two weeks, both last week and and two weeks ago, Kyle led us to the first 12 chapters, sorry, 12 verses, that'd be incredible, the first 12 verses of chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, in which we saw the Apostle Paul call Timothy to share in Paul's suffering for the gospel by the power of God. We're going to continue that theme this morning in our text, which quite honestly is the theme of this morning, the last two weeks, and the entire epistle or letter of 2 Timothy. And this is the theme, to willingly and joyfully endure the suffering that comes for the gospel of Jesus, so that his name would be known and praised and God would receive all glory. So while you're turning there, I think it would be helpful to begin with the uh, the beginning of the first chapter. So I'm going to read from uh, my Bible, which happens to be the ESV. It's going to differ slightly from the red Bible in front of you uh, if you are opening to that. I'm going to start in chapter 1, verse 1. If you would, with me, please stand as we read the word of God. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I might be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois 
and in your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as his prisoner, but share in his suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our own works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed." And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Among those are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me. And was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you will know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Amen. You may be seated. Perhaps it would be helpful as I set the stage just to remind us of the context we are in, where we are in history as Paul is writing this, this, this letter. Uh, it's important to keep that in mind. Paul is writing this during his second imprisonment in Rome. The second imprisonment was greatly different from the first. The first you can read about later, if you'd like to, in Acts uh, chapter 28, where Paul is imprisoned because he was accused of being a heretic by the Jews. Rome didn't fully understand this to its max capacity or Paul's offense, so he was only under, at this time in the first imprisonment, house arrest. The conditions were comfortable, he was able to have visitors, and more, most importantly for Paul, he was able to continue to preach the gospel unhindered. The second imprisonment for preaching the gospel was much, much different. This time it was under the emperor Nero, and Paul was found to be a criminal against the empire of Rome. The conditions were absolutely miserable. He was in, in an underground Roman dungeon where there was quite possibly only one hole that provided light and air into his cell. He was cold, he was alone, with the exception of Luke, and in chapter 4, four verse 6 of this letter, we find that he was anticipating his execution. Now, this was a time where, under Emperor Nero, of immense widespread persecution of the Church of Christ. Many were being put in prison for their faith, having their homes plundered and being executed. In fact, Christians were being burned at the stake simply to light Nero's garden. It is into this world and into this persecution and this context that, pen, or that Paul pens with the power of the Holy Spirit this letter to Timothy. 
Timothy is a recipient. He's a brother in Christ. He's a fellow laborer of Jesus and a spiritual son to Paul. Timothy is the pastor of the church in Ephesus where Paul had left him to care for the flock there. The situation at Ephesus has, since the first Timothy, declined uh, rapidly since that first writing. And then the false teaching is still rampant, if you remember our study through 1 Timothy uh, last fall. As the presence of false teachers were still alive and well. The excommunication of these false teachers from the church isn't going well, and people are even abandoning the faith day after day. It's a place of immense persecution. This is a deeply personal letter with much, much urgency in Paul. Paul is aware that this is, and it was, the last communication that he will have with Timothy, and it ends up being the last epistle that Paul, or letter that Paul ever wrote. And so, with that urgency, he urges Timothy with conviction, as he did and writes in chapter 4, verse 7, to fight the good fight, to finish the race, and to keep the good faith. Let's look at chapter 1. And in chapter 1, there are five exhortations, pleadings, urgings, that Paul gives. Paul urges Timothy in verse 6 to fan into flame the gift of God, namely his love for God, of God, and others in the gospel, which culminated in his ordination as pastor by the laying on of hands. In verse 8, Paul says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. That's a second exhortation. Do not be ashamed of the testimony, nor of me as prisoner. And the third exhortation, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And we come this morning to the fourth and the fifth exhortation, in the first chapter of 2 Timothy. Look down with me again in verses, or starting there in verse 13. This is the, the, the fourth one. Paul writes, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Follow the pattern of sound words, Timothy. That's, that's what Paul says to Timothy before dying or being executed. Or it can also be rendered, Hold to the standard of sound words. Keep the standard of sound teaching. The phrase sound words has, has this idea. The pattern or standard of that which is true, that which is correct, and that which is pure. So what are these sound words? What is uh, this teaching? Well, as it says in verse 13, if you look back down, the words that you have heard from me. Paul is pausing to remind Timothy of the content and the words of his message to the Gentiles. Paul's message to the Gentiles and ultimately to the world. This is the idea. Timothy, he's saying, my son, remember what I have taught you. The words that I have taught you. Paul is an apostle, which means an eyewitness to Jesus and commissioned specifically by Jesus to take the gospel to all the nations, is saying, remember, Timothy, all that I taught you while you were with me, as Timothy went through the nations with Paul. Remember the words about the gospel of Jesus, Timothy. Remember the doctrines of this faith, which is a fancy term for just the foundation, the pillars, the foundation of this Christian faith. Timothy, stay true to them Do not deviate from them. Remind yourself of them. Follow them, both in your own life, 
Timothy, but also as you pastor the church in the midst of the persecution, the suffering, and the rejection that you are seeing. Paul says a similar thing in his first letter to Timothy. 1 Timothy 6, verses 2 and 3 says, Teach and urge these things, meaning truths about Jesus. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and that teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Again, in Titus 1, verse 9, Paul writes, Hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he, meaning the elder or us, the Christian reading this, may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. One of my favorite preachers uh, of all time, Alistair Begg, likes to say about this text, he may say things in a new way, meaning Timothy, but he is not allowed to say a new thing. He must stay true to the gospel. In other words, Timothy is not allowed to depart the gospel that has passed to him for any other different gospel. In the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, of ridicule, of demotion, when the gospel is not popular, when people sneer at you and make fun of you for believing in a God you cannot see, when people are leaving the faith for a more attractive word, for a more popular and easier to digest message, you, Timothy, me, you, Christian, do not depart from the sound teaching. Do not depart from the truth of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, hold fast to the truth of God's word when the world renounces you. What about the manner in which we're supposed to do this? Look, look down again at verse 13. In what manner is Timothy to follow the pattern of sound words? There in verse 13, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Faith and love are only found in Jesus Christ, and thus a relationship with Jesus produces this is really important, a trust in God despite circumstances and a love for others in spite of circumstances. As followers of Christ, what should mark us is a trust of God and a love for others. It was the faith and love of those around him that convinced Matthew Ayagara that God is real and that Jesus is his Savior. Secondly, Paul tells Timothy to guard the good deposit. Look down with me at verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. The deposit here is the Christian faith. It is the good news of salvation for sins in the Son of God, Jesus the Christ. The deposit is a who, not an it. Look back at verse 12 for a moment. Verse 12 says, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he, meaning Jesus, 
is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. What has been entrusted to Paul and thus Timothy and subsequently us, the glorious truths of the forgiveness of sins. Where is that found? In Jesus alone. Notice also in the text that this is not just a deposit, it is the good deposit. The deposit is good because it is from God and only God is good. Paul reminds Timothy of this back in verses 8 through 11 of this good God who saves sins. He lays out the gospel in 8 through 11 again for Timothy and we can just pause and think about how many times Timothy has probably heard the gospel preached by the mouth of Paul throughout that ministry. And yet Paul says, one more time, Timothy, you need to be reminded of this again and again and again. So verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which, Paul says, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. We see the gospel so beautifully laid out once again for Timothy to remember as he reads this. So, the deposit is faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. A personal response to embrace Christ as your personal Savior. It is faith deposited into us by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by man, not by anything I can say or anything anyone can say, but by the power of the Holy Spirit from those whom we have heard it. Paul entrusted it into Timothy. And now he's calling Timothy to entrust it into faithful men, like we'll talk about next week uh, in chapter 2. We cannot do this, and only God can do this work. And it's supported by the rock, like we talked about in verse 13, of sound biblical doctrine and teaching. What are we to do with this deposit? Well, verse 14, Paul makes it clear. He says we are to guard it. What does that mean? Guard your faith. Guard it, Timothy. Protect it. Keep it. Keep it from harm, from being lost, from being damaged by false teachers and false teaching. Cherish it, Timothy. Treasure it. Hold it as precious because it is precious. The first recorded place where Paul uses uh, this language is with Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 20-21. So this would have been familiar to Timothy as he reads the second letter, where he closes his first letter saying, O Timothy, this is his last exhortation, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. And that's the end of the letter. 
If you are a believer here this morning, if you profess that you have put your trust in Christ, this means to serve as a warning to you and me, as a sobering warning, that if we stray from the truth of the gospel, we will stray from the faith. But if we hold fast to it, if we love it and thus regard it as precious and remind ourselves in each of of us of the gospel, we will be able to stand firm in any trial and any suffering the world throws at us, even if it costs us everything, as in the situation with Matthew. So Paul continues in verses 15 through 18 with three examples. Two bad examples and one good example for Timothy to follow. He says, verse 15, if you look back down, you, that is Timothy, are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. The word all here does not mean literally all. It, what it means is a many, a great multitude. A many people, a seemingly great multitude of people have turned away in Asia. And in Asia means the Roman province of Asia, which is really the eastern coast of modern-day Turkey, so not the Asia that we know today. We're talking about um, the modern-day eastern coast of Turkey, which includes, by the way, Ephesus. And he continues on, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. This is um, the only place in the Bible that speaks to these two characters. Um, but in what follows, we are to understand two things. First, that Timothy knows the situation of desertion surrounding these two people. And second, that they, these two people, are the antithesis or the opposite of the positive example. That's what we're supposed to get from this. He says in verse 16, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service, again you, Timothy, well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. In other words, what we see here is an example for both Paul and Timothy and for us of what it looks like to not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord and nor of Paul, as it says in verse 8. Onesiphorus, upon arriving in Rome, which is at this time the center of Christian persecution, was not afraid and did not shrink back to earnestly seek out Paul in prison. He zealously sought for Paul and continued to search for him until he found him. And then, most, almost more importantly, he associated with Paul in the midst of a persecuting Rome. He said, essentially, I am with Paul, this man in prison, whom you are about to execute, and I am with Jesus, whom he represents. And by doing so, and the fellowship that ensued uh, between Paul and Onesiphorus, he refreshed the suffering apostle, which as a side note, guys, when we get together as believers and truly fellowship in a way that glorifies God, that it's not about us, it's not about what I get out of this conversation or what I get out of this social status, 
but believers truly coming together and fellowshipping in a way that actually glorifies God, that is refreshing to one another. That is refreshing to believers, to everyone involved. So here's the big question. How do we do this? How do we guard the good deposit of the Christian faith and follow the pattern of sound teaching and sound words? How do we suffer for the gospel whilst not straying from the truth in today's world? With the time remaining, I'd like to to leave you with three, uh, what I would argue, biblical marks of a Christian who guards the good deposit. First, uh, might sound kind of fundamental, but first, and almost more impor- most importantly, we must possess the deposit. We cannot guard that which we don't possess. God says in the Bible that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, which is snakes, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, and their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths of ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul writes that in Romans. The Bible is really clear. All of mankind has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, of God's holy and perfect standard. But God, in his ever-loving kindness and for his glory, has given us a way to true life and true everlasting eternity. That through the perfect life and the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross, that he paid the penalty for your sin and for my sin, and that he defeated death by rising again and is now seated with God Almighty on the throne, that if we agree with him that we are sinful and that we need his help, he will save us. And if we repent of our sin, which literally means to turn, to turn, that's what repenting means, to turn from our sin, to say no more to our sins and our flesh, And to turn to Jesus and say, yes, I need you, and only you can help me. In you alone, Christ, is there grace and mercy and forgiveness. That when there is true repentance, something amazing happens. We get get new eyes. We, We get new ears. And he changes our heart. He changes our desires so that all of a sudden, nothing is more important than him. Nothing is more important than Jesus. And all of a sudden, when you see with new eyes and when you behold simultaneously both the totality of the wickedness of your sin next to the awesome holiness of God and the gloriousness of the good news of Jesus, we can't help but choose him and serve him and worship him and treasure him as precious. A changed heart, First Baptist Church, is really important. A changed heart produces overwhelming joy. 
the joy of realized salvation. And that joy and salvation will fuel you through even the most harshest of suffering. Listen to these words of the writer of Hebrews talking about Jesus. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, while enduring rejection from his creation during his ministry, and while enduring rejection from his Father on the cross, where did he look? He looked forward to the joy that was set before him. The joy of the accomplishment of salvation done for all and to be reunited with the Father in heaven. That, brothers and sisters, is how we hold fast to the gospel in suffering. We look to Jesus as the example in the way that he suffered. We must know him in order to guard the deposit. For those of you this morning that are here that would say you're not a believer, if you would say that you would not have put your faith, your trust in Jesus to forgive your sins, we just want you to know as members of First Baptist Church that there is no better place for you to be this morning than here, we believe, listening to God's word being spoken. And that we love you and that we would be happy, any one of us, to talk with you about what this really means. So first and foremost, we must possess the deposit. Secondly, rejoice often in the gospel. Rejoice often in the gospel. We must be a people about the good news of Jesus because we are a changed people by Jesus. The reality is we are so forgetful, if you are anything like me. We are a forgetful people, and if we're not careful, we can wake up in the morning and immediately go about our days without any regard to the preciousness of the gospel that I just told you, of, the, of Jesus, without any regard to the transforming love that he has shown you. So we must hear it, we must read it, and we must speak it, which means we must read God's word. Not out of obligatory self-condemnation or a guilt trip, but because we love him out of a response to the love that he showed us. And we want to know him and know him better. We also must gather together corporately and hear it faithfully preached and taught. Hebrews 10.24 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We must come together and hear and praise his name, and learn and grow in truth and in an understanding of the beautiful, wonderful gift of Christ. So first we must possess the deposit, and this is all in order to guard the deposit and to follow the pattern of sound words. 
First, we must possess the deposit. And second, we must rejoice often in the gospel. And finally, our third point, uh, we must live in light of that day. Live in that light of that day. Look again at verse 12. Paul says, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And again, about Onesiphorus, this time in verse 18, if you glance down to verse 18, he says, May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. So what is, what is that day? As Christians, as believers, we believe there's a day coming when Jesus will return again. That it's not a myth, that is not a mythology, that is not fantasy. It will happen. And this time, he won't come to offer forgiveness. Paul says about that day in Philippians 2, and being found, this is talking about Jesus, Jesus being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of what he did, by humbling himself and becoming obedient to death and death on a cross, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, Jesus, the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, something amazing happens when changed hearts live in light of that day, the day when he is coming back. We, we start shedding the cares and the worries of this world. And we start living, we start living for the kingdom of God because it's more important than the cares of this day. We invest in others. We speak with urgency, not with not being a jerk, but with urgency about Jesus. And those are two different things. We disciple people. We entrust and pass on the deposit to others and to the next generation. First Baptist Church, there is a day coming when every knee will bow, whether it wants to or not. Every knee will bow. May we, this body, be found on that day with our knees in willing, humble submission, following the sound words and guarding the gospel in the midst of suffering and for God's glory. Please pray with me. Father God, we are so grateful for your loving kindness that we can even breathe in air, which is a mercy from you, this moment that in hopes that we would bow our knee, both believer and non-believer alike, to submit to you. Thank you, Father, for loving us unconditionally. Thank you for your Son, Jesus, and thank you for 
Paul and his writing to Timothy and the way that it encourages us, the way that it aligns our hearts with your will and your truth and not with our interpretation of it. Lord, we need your spirit at work here and we pray that it would work. Help us, Lord Jesus. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Alamogordo. We are located at 1100 Michigan Avenue in Alamogordo, New Mexico. We meet on Sundays for small groups at 9 a.m. and worship at 1030. If you have more questions, please email office at fbcalamo.com or call 575-437-5510. Thank you for listening and may God bless you this week.